to Biology for Bastards, where we teach biology in the most profane way you've ever seen or heard. I'm your host, John Doty. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed the little bonus episode we dropped last week all about the opossum and why they're the most badass animal there is. Um, Today we're going to get back to it. Um, We are on Chapter 7, talking about cell membranes. So this is some pretty intense biology we're getting into this one um we're going to talk about the structure how they're made or not how they're made but yeah how they're made i guess that's one way you could say what they're made of is really what i was going for um how they work and how they allow the cell to do work so some pretty intense biology a little biochem um there in some places so before we get into it um, thanks for listening. Like I said, I last week I kind of pushed for 150 downloads. Um, we are over 200 now. Every time I see that number goes up, I get a little giddy inside. So keep telling people, keep sharing, keep listening. Um, feel free to follow us on Twitter. That hasn't changed much. We're at Bio for Bastards. Um, that's kind of fun. That would be cool to hear from everybody, where everybody's from, what they think of it tips to improve because I'm always open to that so feel free to give us a follow give us a shout out um yeah that would be great you may have noticed there are ads at the end you can listen to those you can skip them I don't really care but it's basically for the website that I'm using so you can make your own for free you can listen to the ad for that and we also have a support button on the website which you can access through our twitter page um, it is anchor.fm slash bastards. so if you want to throw some money my way so maybe I can make this a little bit fancier, that'd be cool. Or if you just want to give me money, I also just approve of that. But all that housekeeping stuff being said, let's get into cell membranes. So we've talked about it a little bit before about cell membranes. It's something that every cell has because you got to keep the inside in and the outside out and all that shit. Um... But these membranes that we're talking about are known as selectively permeable, or you might sometimes see it as semi-permeable. And that just means some things can go across it, others can't. That's the whole selectively, or the semi. Some things can go through, others can't. Um, And the way we really describe it, the cell membrane, is as this fluid mosaic model. Fluid, because it's moving, it's not always the same. There's a bunch of changes that can happen in mosaic because it's made up of a bunch of different things like phospholipids, which we'll get into in a little more detail, proteins, carbohydrates, all that stuff makes up the current fluid mosaic model. But it wasn't the first model. Um, there were some where people believed that the phospholipid, which are the fats with the hydrophobic tails and the hydrophilic heads, I always have to be careful with that, um, were sandwiched between proteins, but that wouldn't work because there's proteins that have some hydrophobic parts, and if they were on the outside of this so-called sandwich model, um, they'd be interacting with the water in the surroundings, so that didn't work. And it wasn't until um, 1972 that we got the current fluid mosaic model, um, which has 
the lipid phospholipid bilayer, so two layers with the tails facing each other, so the hydrophobic parts are kind of protected from the hydro from the water by the hydrophilic parts. And then we have all these different proteins kind of scattered throughout the membrane. Um, so I've already mentioned the hydrophobic head, sorry, hydrophobic tail, hydrophilic head of the phospholipids. Um, but those structures, those phospholipids, also help kind of keep the membrane fluid because some of them are unsaturated, some of the fatty acid tails. And if you remember, unsaturated means it has a double bond, and those little fuckers keep it from freezing. So when the temperatures get low, the little bends in those tails keep them from packing tightly, and it keeps your cells from dying. So I don't know about you, but in my book, live cells are good cells. So that's really, really good. Um, that's what cholesterol does in your cells, is it both limits it from getting too packed together when the temperature gets really low, but it also kind of keeps it, you know, not too fluidy um, when the temperature starts to get high. So that's kind of the phospholipid component of the fluid mosaic model. The other part are these membranes. Sorry, not membranes. I'm recording this one early in the morning. I'm still drinking my coffee. It hasn't kicked in, hence all the mistakes. And as I said in chapter six, if I were a professional, I'd re-record this and make it all pretty, but I don't give a fuck because this is just something I'm doing. So it's one take unscripted and we just kind of go with it. So I'm going to take a little sip of coffee and then I'm going to talk about membrane proteins. There we go. All right, membrane proteins. There's two types. We've got peripheral proteins, which are on the outside or the inside of the membrane. The important thing is that they don't go through it. Okay, they are either completely outside of the cell or completely inside the cell. Um, kind of help make framework. Um, they're held in place either by the cytoskeleton or some of that extracellular matrix we talked about. Um, stuff on the outside, just kind of scaffolding. Now, the, and I've heard this pronounced two different ways. The integral proteins is how I say it. I've also heard integral, but I think I go integral um, proteins. Those are actually embedded, so they span the width of the cell membrane. And they have hydrophobic insides. They're where the tails are, so hiding from the water. They have hydrophilic outsides. So one is facing the cytoplasm of the cell on the inside of the cell. One is facing the extracellular environment. And these guys and gals, if we're assigning genders the proteins, which is stupid, these things are really, really important for like some signaling um, or transport or um, enzymes. So they do a lot of stuff because they can serve as pathways for certain things to get through. So if this, um, we said it's semi-permeable, if it's a really big molecule, it has problems getting through because it's too big, it just can't fit. So these integral proteins can serve as, you know, gateways 
that they can pass through. They can also serve um, for signal transduction. So it receives a signal from outside the cell and because the protein spans the membrane, it can trigger something inside the cell. Um, it can be useful for cell-to-cell -cell recognition. And then, you know, all the stuff that happens from that. We did talk about some gap junctions, some tight junctions, stuff like that at the very end of chapter six. Um, it, these integral proteins can do stuff like that. So they do a whole bunch of shit, um, the integral proteins. I'm not saying that the um, membrane proteins aren't important or the peripheral proteins aren't important. They're just a lot simpler. They have fewer roles than the integral proteins. Now also part of this cell membrane, so we've talked about the phospholipids making the actual bilayer. We've talked about the proteins kind of either on the outside or spanning that bilayer. There's also a bunch of carbohydrates involved because these carbs are basically signals. They're basically flags or signs um, that help with cells identifying other cells. And we have glycolipids, we have glycoproteins. All glyco means is that there's a carbohydrate involved. So a glycolipid is a lipid plus a carbohydrate. A glycoprotein is a protein with a carbohydrate on it. And these are things when you talk about cells identifying invaders or like blood typing. If you have like type A positive blood, you have these carbohydrates. I think they're glycoproteins, to be perfectly honest. I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think they're glycoproteins um, hanging off your cells saying, you know, this is type A blood and it's type positive blood. And that's how you can um, use stuff when you identify things. Now, there is a sightedness to the cell membrane. We have an inside and an outside. And that is determined um, as it's being built by that endomembrane system that we talked about last chapter. So you can see we're getting to the point where shit starts to pile up on itself. Where if you haven't listened to episode 6, then this one's going to be a little shitty for you. Because it just starts adding up real fast. Um, and we're really getting to that. That's how biology does it. So if you're behind one, I'm go back, listen, and then pick this one back up. So the endomembrane system we talked about was the endoplasmic reticulum and the Golgi. So as it's being built, um, the inside of the vesicle made by the Golgi will be the outside of the plasma membrane. So just think about that. When the Golgi apparatus makes a vesicle and it's got that little bubble, the way it works is the inside of that Golgi vesicle is going to be the outside of the cell membrane. And the outside of the vesicle will be the inside of the cell membrane. So by that, it's able to make this sidedness to the cell membrane. All right, with me so far, because now we're getting, that's the structure. Phospholipids, carbohydrates, proteins, all that shit. We're now getting into how the membrane works. So getting to that selectively permeable nature of it. Now, small things, whether they're polar or nonpolar, 
can get across easily. They can squeeze between the phospholipids. We're talking things like tiny little hydrocarbons, carbon dioxide, oxygen, real tiny shit. Um, but bigger things or charged particles, they got they got some shit they got to go through because charged things don't like to go through the hydrophobic middle because the hydrophobic middle doesn't like them. And if they're too big, there's just no way you're going to squeeze through between all those things. So that's where we need help. Here, there's different things. So this is where we start talking about transport and diffusion and concentration gradients. So before we get into all that shit, I'm just saying shit a bunch today. Must be my morning word. Um, there's a little aside for you. So a concentration gradient is just where there's a high concentration on one side of something and a low concentration somewhere else. So that's what we mean by a gradient. And diffusion is this movement down the concentration gradient. So from high to low. That's what we mean by diffusion. Um, and diffusion happens because these particles that we're talking about are just randomly buzzing around, bumping into each other, shoving people out of the way. And when they're really tightly packed, it's going to shove them where there's more space, which is where they're loosely packed. So we have a couple different types of transport. Uh, the first one we're going to kind of focus on is passive transport. Passive meaning no energy. No energy whatsoever for passive transport. It's the fusion. It's just movement from high to low. Like you pour water on the top of a hill and it's going to flow down. That's passive transport. Um, now, if we're specifically talking about the diffusion of water, we call that osmosis. We've talked about solutes, solvents, all that stuff. So when we care about osmosis, what we care about is the free water. So that's the stuff that is not dealing with dissolving shit. So if it's surrounding um, a solute particle doing its thing, making that hydration shell, that's not free water. It can't diffuse. It's busy. So we care about free water. So when we are talking about a solution, the fewer solute particles in that solution, the more free water there is. That's just kind of flip-flopped. The more solute, the less free water. And osmosis is the diffusion of water. So it's the movement of water from where there's a higher concentration of water, of free water, to a lower level of free water. So all this um, determines the tonicity of a solution. Because when you throw a cell in a solution, there's three options. The solution can either be have a higher amount of free water, it can have a lower amount of free water, or it can have exactly the same amount of free water. Because those are the three options when you're comparing two numbers, higher, lower, or the same. So you take a cell, we're going to talk about plants and animals because they're a little bit different because plants have that cell wall that animal cells don't. So if you throw a cell in a hypotonic solution, hypotonic, hypo means below, like hypothermia, it's below temperature, hypotonic solution, there is less water. Hold on. 
Like I said, it's morning. Let me take some coffee. Okay, I'm back. There is less free water inside the cell than in the outside solution, so water is going to rush in. And in an animal cell, that can cause a cell to burst and just pop and die, and that's bad. But in a plant cell, that's normal. That cell is, becomes what's known as turgid. T U R G I D, turgid. It's a fun little dumb sounding word, turgid. And that just means it's swollen, it's happy, um, it's how they stay supporting of the plant. If you see a plant wilting, um, that's when you have not enough water and it gets a little, you know, all that shit. So you throw a cell in a solution that is exactly the same amount of free water as is inside the cell. That is isotonic. Iso means same. So that means there's no net change of water. Water's moving back and forth. It's just moving at the same rate. So that's why you use saline solution. If you're like super dehydrated in the hospital, they pump you full of saline because that is isotonic to what you should be. If you're dehydrated, it's going to rush the water in, but as soon as you get to the point where you should be, you're going to be cool. You're going to be good. Um, now, in plants, an isotonic solution actually makes the plant flaccid which is just fun. It's flaccid. It's limp. It means what you think it means. And if you throw a cell in a hypertonic solution, there's more shit dissolved outside than on the inside. So there's less free water. So water's going to rush out and the plant will become plasmalized where all the um, cytoplasm pulls away from the walls and it makes it sad and wilty all right we are now at the point where we need to know some math okay so if you haven't been paying attention to the slides today um, I will go through and check the slides because there's examples here um, it's water potential and this is how you determine which way water is going to flow so there's a, a Greek letter I think it's rho. I don't know. It looks like a trident. So I don't speak Greek and I don't know Greek letters. Um, but whatever that letter is, it just says it's the symbol we use to refer to water potential. And water is going to move from high water potential to low water potential, just like we've talked about. And there's an equation to figuring this out. And what you have to do is um, calculate this water potential by figuring out the solute potential. Because water potential is the solute potential plus the pressure. So if there's physical pressure pushing the solution in a certain direction. So that's pretty easy to do. The hard part isn't that hard but it's calculating the solute potential because there's an equation. The equation is negative ICRT, which all those things mean something. Definitely go check the show notes to find the slides, see what's going on, because I 
am going to do my best to describe this math, but math is better seen than heard. So, what does the solute potential mean? Well, what it is, it's equal to negative ICRT. Um, the negative is important um, because what it does is when you add solute, you're lowering the potential of the water. You're lowering the water potential. So that's why there's that negative there. I, the variable I, stands for the ionization constant. So just how many particles does that make when you throw it in solution? So something like sodium chloride, it dissociates in the sodium into chlorine or chloride. So that has a I value of two. Something like glucose, it doesn't dissolve, it does dissolve, it doesn't dissociate, has a ionization constant of one. So usually things are one or two. Uh, they can be more, they can't be less, you can't have zero, but usually one or two. If it's a sugar, it's one. Um, if it's an ionic compound, it's probably two, might be three. Um, then you have C, which is the molar concentration. We've talked about molarity. It's the number of moles of solute per liter of solution. R in the equation negative ICRT is the pressure constant. So it's the same number every time. It is 0 0.0831 liter bars per mole Kelvin. That's a crazy ass value. Basically all everything cancels out. And then the temperature is T and it's the temperature in Kelvin. So you take the temperature in degrees Celsius and add 273 to it. You do that math of the ionization constant times the molar concentration times the pressure constant times the temperature. And you take the negative of all of that. That gives you your solute potential. And as we said, water is going to move from a higher water potential value to a lower water potential value. So it's going to move to more negative. And it is going to move from where you have a lower solute concentration to a higher solute concentration because lower solute concentration means more free water. And it's going to move from a high pressure to a low pressure, okay, which is kind of obvious. And that's how trees work. There's a high water potential at the roots. There's a low water potential at the top of the tree and it just pulls the water without having a pump. So that's kind of pretty nifty. Um, there's a practice problem on calculating the solute potential of a tenth molar sodium chloride solution at 25 degrees Celsius. Um, you can work through it if you want, if you're following along, negative ICRT. The ionization constant of sodium chloride is 2. Um, C is 0.1, R is equal to 0.0831, that's the constant, it's always the same. The temperature at 25 degrees Celsius is 25 plus 273, so that's 298. You should get a number of negative 4.95. Boom. Shit done. That's the confusing shit for today. So take a deep breath, you're good. Um, and now we're going to talk about a different type of diffusion. So all that shit that we just talked about, 
was osmosis. Passive transport, no energy, just doing its shit. Um, sometimes we need help moving shit across the membrane. That's where facilitated diffusion comes in. And it uses these things called transport proteins, which are integral proteins spanning the width of the cell membrane. And it's going to help move things across. And they can do it in a couple ways. There can be channels. It could be carrier proteins. Anything like that. They could be gated channels, which just means they open or close, depending on if there's some sort of stimulus there. Um, but they help move polar molecules or big ions or big molecules, not just big ions. Ions or big molecules. And a very important type of protein that helps in facilitated diffusion is this aquaporin. Aqua means water, aquaporin. It allows three billion molecules of water across the cell membrane every fucking second. Just like super fucking fast. Um, keeps our cells from bursting, keeps them from shriveling up. It really helps regulate the flow of water. We have a bunch of other ones. We have like a glucose transport protein, which is a carrier protein, which just means it changes a little bit when the glucose gets there. Um, but that's all facilitated diffusion is. After all that shit about osmosis, it's nice to have something really simple. It just has a little help getting shit across. Um, now, the opposite of diffusion and passive transport is active transport, where it does take energy. And energy is the form of ATP. We'll talk about ATP more in the next couple chapters, but it's the energy molecule. And every type of active transport will require energy and will require carrier proteins. It has to have some help. So we're talking about pumps here. And we're moving things from an area of low concentration to an area of high concentration. So we're going against the current, which makes sense. It's, it takes no energy to float downstream, but it takes a lot of energy to paddle upstream. We are paddling upstream with active transport. And there's two main ways that we're going to focus on active transport. We've got pumps, electrogenic pumps, and we've got co-transport. So co-transport kind of uses these electrogenic pumps. So we'll start with these pumps first. So what they do is there's this voltage difference um, within the cell. So there's voltage across the membrane where you pump different types of ions to get this charge difference. So you can have a chemical gradient um, where you have you know high concentration, low concentration, but you need this ATP to like, say you've got a sodium potassium pump. Okay, you're gonna pump sodium out of the cell, pump potassium into the cell for like nervous system transmission, all that other shit. Bunch of different things actually go on with this. Um, so that's gonna you know change the charge because you're pumping. Let me think. Let me get my stuff straight. If I remember correctly, you're pumping two out and one in, or it might be vice versa. You're pumping a different number in, so it's changing the charge. Um, and then you definitely have something, protein, proton pumps. 
huge fucking deal. Proton pumps are super fucking important. Right? Because basically that really creates a charge difference because you're pushing these positively charged hydrogens across the membrane and you're depositing them somewhere. So you get a shit ton on one side, barely any on the other, and that is going to have a massive effect on doing stuff later. And that's how this idea of co-transport works that I mentioned. You do these pumps first where you pump all this shit in kind of store energy so you pump all the hydrogens uphill against the concentration gradient and then you use that diffusion because it wants to go from high to low so you use that power to bring something with it and it could be like a sugar or something big that requires help getting across the membrane so imagine it's like you're pushing an empty wheelbarrow up a hill because that's easy but then you're using that wheelbarrow to bring something big down the hill using gravity to help you move it so that's all co-transport is um, now it's very important to kind of compare passive versus active the super obvious one is passive and it requires no energy while active requires energy passive we're going from high to low active we're going low to high concentrations so passive we're going down the concentration gradient active transport we're going up against it and with passive we've got stuff like diffusion osmosis and facilitated diffusion and active transport we've got like we we have pumps and if we've got something super fucking big we've got um endo and exocytosis which is just moving stuff inside the cell if it's endocytosis or exocytosis we're moving shit out that's how we move really big things and we get vesicles involved and all that shit um but with that we come to the end that's it that's the membrane so after this we're going to start focusing on energy what energy is some cellular respiration some photosynthesis some really good biochem biology shit um in the weeks to come so wrapping everything up thank you for listening um don't forget to subscribe, tell everybody, um, get that listening number up. That'd be awesome. Um, so every if everybody tells one friend, I'd be happy. That'd be amazing. So spread the word. Follow us on Twitter, at bio for bastards um, Rate, subscribe, like, all that shit. And I have been your host, John Doty. And until next time for listening. So you may have just heard an ad, but I can't end with an ad. So just once again, follow us on Twitter at BioForBastards. Um, rate, subscribe, tell everybody you know about it. And again, thanks for listening.